You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. Hello and welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. In this episode, you will hear Christine Livingston talk about AI and machine learning. We discuss the AI trends, especially what cloud platforms have done for the adoption, the value of big data and data quality, and of course, AI ethics. We also covered what is hype versus real in the context of AI. As we wrapped up, Christine mentioned a couple of cool use cases, including conversational commerce and intelligent automation. Let's jump right in. IDC Worldwide Artificial Intelligence Spending Guide predicts that the global AI spending in 2024 could reach $100 billion. Of the 30 emerging technologies in Gartner's latest hype cycle, nine are related to AI. In fact, the future of industrial revolution is AI. Our guest on the podcast today is Christine Livingston, Chief Strategist and Managing Director for AI Practice and Proficient. Christine has been an industry leader in the AI space and has been doing some creative implementation with Proficient's AI clients. I'm very excited to have her in our show. Christine, welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. Thanks, Arvind. Great to be here. So can you introduce yourself and your role at Proficient? Sure. So I have been with Proficient for about eight years now, and I currently lead our artificial intelligence and machine learning team. We've been focused on this space for about six years, looking at meaningful ways for clients to embrace and adopt the technology, doing a lot of work recently to help clients craft their strategy, identify appropriate use cases, and ultimately to implement and deploy those AI ML-based solutions. AI is making its way into every industry and every use case. What are some of the trends that you see in AI and machine learning in the market? One of the interesting trends we've seen recently is the tendency of somewhat slow-moving industries in financial services and healthcare particularly to start to adopt some of these solutions. And it's very much, I think, related to the adoption of cloud more generally, but starting to see some of those industries actually deploy AI ML in meaningful ways and starting to leverage the power of predictive analytics to bring additional value to their solutions, their offerings, uh, and a lot of times to their decision-making process. We've also seen a lot of trends recently around propensity modeling. So a lot of clients across many different industries looking at propensity to buy, propensity to consume a certain service or product. And it's, it's been very interesting to see that trend manifest itself in life insurance, for example. How likely is someone to purchase a specific policy or how likely is someone to read an email at a certain time of day or how likely is someone to need a semi-elective surgical procedure in the next 18 months? So there's a lot of different flavors of propensity modeling, and it's some form of predictive analytics, 
but that's been a very interesting trend we've seen more broadly over the last, I would say, six to 12 months. Interesting. I'm very interested to know your thoughts on the leaders and laggards specifically related to cloud adoption. Now, you mentioned that healthcare and FinServe are some of the, the laggards in AI versus, you know, some of the advanced retail uh, customers have, have adopted AI to the fullest potential. What does cloud give AI um, that that you see a faster adoption. It is, is it the accelerators? Is it the storage and compute? Is it the unlimited scalability or all of the above and others? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. And I think it depends also what, how you define artificial intelligence. There is a broad spectrum of definitions for the space. And when you think about the simplest, purest definition of artificial intelligence, which is the simulation of human-like thinking, many Many, many industries have been adopting, quote unquote, AI for several years. When you start to think really about machine learning and the element that that introduces to this broad spectrum of artificial intelligence, the ability to compute across huge data sets mm-hmm. almost instantaneously, I think is really driving that adoption, right? It's not very helpful to have a clinical decision tool that takes four hours to make a recommendation <laughs> or right. to have a decision insight tool that does a batch process overnight. So the ability to compute and to interpret across huge data sets almost instantaneously, which is the compute portion of the cloud, I think is really driving adoption of those technologies in the machine learning, predictive analytics, advanced analytics space. When you think about some of the, let's say more of the SaaS-based pre-trained applications of artificial intelligence, which would be like conversational AI or natural language processing, cloud adoption is accelerated because you've got many of the major players able to pre-train models to understand natural language. So they're taking 80% of the heavy lift of building a conversational application, and they're packaging that into a pre-trained SaaS API that can then be tuned and tailored, often through a transfer learning type of mechanism, to your specific use case and deployed very, very quickly. So we're also seeing adoption of pre-trained SaaS models in the cloud because of the time to value that they bring. Like the way you kind of broke it down there. So essentially, you're saying that these data-driven machine learning predictive prescriptive models are driven by the speed of insight creation. And that speed is also directly dependent on the speed of data creation itself, which is accelerated by the cloud from a compute standpoint versus the conversational bots and the NLP algorithms uh, are accelerated with the pre-trained models from the cloud vendors themselves. Is that is that a um, an accurate way of thinking about this? Yes, very nicely stated. Nice, fantastic. No, that's uh, great for our listeners to know how to think about the trends there. Um, all right, with the pace of AI innovation, how are the clients moving past the hype? I mean, there's just so much going on out there. What is what is hype versus real for organizations? I mean, if you want to break it down by industries or are there other ways to think about this? 
Sure. I've got a, a favorite graphic I like to use, which shows value versus hype of types of machine learning. So there's many different types of machine learning, right? It's not all created equal. You've got supervised, unsupervised, reinforcement learning, transfer learning, all different types of models and algorithms that can be created and leveraged. Mm -hmm. Often when clients think about artificial intelligence and machine learning, they think I'm going to toss a bunch of data at an algorithm and I'm going to get back all of these really meaningful insights. Loosely stated, that can be thought of as unsupervised learning, right? I'm going to see the conclusions that my algorithms draw for me by just throwing huge amounts of data at it, much more experimental, but that's, that's kind of the vision, right? Or the excitement or the hype. Sure. The reality is that many more businesses are driving quantifiable, tangible value with supervised models, which means there's humans providing input, providing pre-labeled or pre-classified data inputs. And the algorithm is learning how to interpret those at a larger scale. So when you look at value hype, unsupervised learning has a huge hype. It's not actually driving much meaningful business value yet, right? This is a discrete point in time that will change. Supervised learning, however, not as exciting because there's a human element to it, but it's what's actually driving the vast majority of meaningful business value today. And this is really why we're seeing also that explosion in transfer learning. Uh -huh. which sits in between really those two algorithms says, how can I start with a supervised model and start to move it a little bit towards that unsupervised spectrum where I can train it on something similar, but not quite the same. And so we're starting to see, you know, a lot of, I think, momentum for that transfer learning space to help. It's that balance of the hype and the value. Um, and we also always strongly encourage our clients to not only think about checking off a box that says, we're going to deploy artificial intelligence and machine learning, but really understanding and quantifying the ROI that that expected investment will drive so that when that model is successful in that first deployment makes a big sensation, you can justify future spend based on showing the tangible business value that was derived. And that's typically looking at the complexity of execution against the value that a particular use case or solution will drive for your organization. So since you touched up on value versus hype, let's talk about the value of data in, in AI and machine learning specifically. What happens when you have good data or bad data? How, how, can, you, how can data help machine learning? Well, data is obviously the most critical element of machine learning. You have the best algorithm in the world, the best data scientists in the world, and if you don't have the right data, you'll be able to gather little to no insight. And the data, you know, the age old garbage in, garbage out still applies, even possibly more so to the machine learning space than any other technology space overall. And it's really about, you know, having the right data inputs. You can't drive an insight or make a recommendation if the underlying data to drive that is incorrect, invalid, out of date, you name it, right? Data is the single most important element to the success of your machine learning program. 
absolutely. And, and I think the, you know, just just to share some of the things that I've learned. Um, you know, we started. I started my career back way back when with uh, data governance, as in how do you build policies and procedures to protect your data, to govern your data, so on. The the concept of governance still didn't change. It's more data, more real time data, and more ways of consuming that data that has changed. So now people are thinking about how do I put policies uh, and data protection in place, and also to some extent data quality. So that to your point about garbage in, garbage everywhere or garbage out, right, um, that can be at least reduced, minimized if possible. Have you have you seen a lot of uh, discussion about data governance and data quality in your uh, in your implementation? We have sometimes it comes in the wrong order, right? Often, often we'll build the model. We'll look at the output. We'll do some EDA exercises and realize that there are either gaps in the data, incorrect data, there is, or perhaps it's just not stored in a way that's meaningful for your particular model or algorithm, right? So a, a really common example you can think of is, is zip code. A lot of solutions are looking at location-based information, but if you look at each zip code discreetly, versus maybe a larger region of zip codes, you will often end up with, I'm gonna to try to pronounce this correctly, multicollinearity, <laughs> right? Um, where, where you start to have too much numerical data with discrete options, when really what you're looking to understand is more of a grouping or a categorical sense of data with an ordinal relationship, right? Meaning all zip codes that start with these three digits or end with these three digits, right, are relatively close to each other would constitute a region. Um, and so it's a lot of times this back and forth of running your EDA visualizations, looking at the balance of data within your set, as well as how that information is stored and whether that storage and governance around your data points is actually a meaningful way to serve to your model. I'm so glad that nothing changed. So 20 years ago, when we stood up a data governance committee, if you will, our very first use case was, how do we go clean up the zip code? Here we are 20 years after, and you're bringing up a zip code example. So <laughs> still the same problem. Um, it, it, it's interesting. You're talking more about the segmentation and the hierarchy um, you know, especially for zip codes, without that clarity or clean data sets, you will not be able to do any machine learning, any predictions for those segments, right? Is that is that is that what you're trying to uh, think about? That's correct. I think it's always, you know, it's always a balance too of what are the insights that we're trying to generate, right? What are we trying to understand or learn from our data, and what is the appropriate way? to transform or model that data to best serve the purpose of our algorithm, right? So it has to start at the base layer with clean, trusted, reliable data. And then there's always a transformation or an engineering exercise, again, to make sure that we are providing data input specific to the expected output of the model. Going along with that same topic, um, what about the three Vs, volume, variety, and veracity of training data? I mean, how important is that? And how do you change your strategy from a 
more static data, but lots of data, versus less volume, however, more frequency, more veracity, right? H how does the strategy change for AI in these two scenarios? Yeah, I mean, it's always a function of, again, what what is the business value and the use case that we're trying to support? Why am I building this model? What insights am I trying to gain? What am I trying to interpret or understand proactively? And making decisions about your data based on that business use case is always the most critical or most important action to take. Not all use cases are going to require streaming sub-second insights, right? Some can happen overnight. Some can be more a longer duration in nature. It depends entirely on the use case you're trying to drive. Um, I think one of the things that we've seen you know, somewhat in this space is a tendency of people to use machine learning to validate their opinion rather than using machine learning to highlight what they don't already know. And by that, I mean, you'll start with your initial hypothesis. And maybe your hypothesis will be that people in a certain region are more likely to purchase Starbucks over Dunkin' Donuts. Let's say that's your hypothetical statement, right? And that's based on your own intuition, your own observations about the world around you. You may model your data. You may create an algorithm that shows you that it's not actually based on region. Maybe it's more based on occupation. And you can then make a concerted effort to say, do we look at what the data is telling us through our EDA exercises, through our model output? Or do we then try to say, well, occupation must therefore be a factor of geography and where you live. And are we trying to fit the algorithm into the box of our intuition, or are we using the data that's available to us, the modeling techniques and the accuracy measures available to us to actually learn what we don't already intuitively know or learn that our intuition is actually incorrect? Interesting. I. Um... A friend of mine, uh, he, he made a statement uh, once and he said, data is your truth versus analytics is your meaning, right? Typically, a meaning can be whatever you're biased towards. You can make a meaning out of data because you've got so many types of data and so much data, right? Uh, but, but it's always you let the machine learning, to your point, speak out of what the data says instead of you as a human being trying to actively go make something out of that. So how, how do you avoid that from a best practice perspective? Um, how do you avoid that inherent human bias, which, you know, we've been that way since the dawn of time? <laughs> of course. You know? Right. I think a lot of it is is about setting, again, appropriate expectations up front mm -hmm. and engaging with your business to understand also what's the value of learning something you don't already know. The value of reinforcing your existing intuition or opinions is typically very low, right? If if you're going to say everyone is going to buy Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts based on where they live, that's a very simple decision tree. We don't need machine learning to provide that output to us. If you're going to look at this space, you have to be willing to accept the output and the insights that that generates and, and learn and adapt from that, right? 
Um, so a lot of it is really, I think, just about expectation setting, but then also showing, again, typically through EDA exercises and precision recall metrics, right, why the model is correct, right? It's also, and this is a hard leap for that data scientist mindset to take. You can create a very meaningful model with incredibly high precision and recall, you know, what would be considered a very quote unquote accurate model. That's a somewhat dangerous word, but quote unquote accurate model. But if you can't actually translate that, what is the real world meaning, right, of this output or these insights, your program will never take off, right? You have to be able to translate into the real world meaning and application of that output. This goes into a very interesting skill set you're talking about. So now you're you're saying that data scientists to some extent are change managers because they got to be transparent with their the people who are providing these use cases to say you need to be open for what the data says you you know i can't make the machine learning model to go give you a particular outcome i just have to show you what the model predicts out of the data you give me so there, there's an aspect of change management here that you're saying, which is important for the data scientists and the business analysts who are trying to gather these use cases, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a different way of thinking. Very interesting. And how are the how are your clients adopting to that thinking? I mean, do you have to do that over and over again, or is that driven by, say, a, a very strong chief AI officer or somebody the likes of that? How do how do your clients take that? Um, you know, so, some better than others, right? Um, and we've we've learned a lot along the way as well, right? It takes a few passes to learn. Um, so we've learned to engage with any change management that exists within a company already, or to specifically call that out as a need up front. But it always starts with a strong executive sponsor who understands the value of the program that you're trying to create the reasons you're pursuing AI and ML and can help communicate that and champion that internally as well. It takes a village to build an AI. Got it. <laughs> it certainly does. So since we're talking about skill set, I'm also seeing that, you know, when you go to some of the job sites, you're constantly seeing, seeing data scientists being asked for data engineering skill set. Do you see an evolution of engineers becoming scientists and scientists becoming engineers or somewhere in the middle? What's what's happening in the world of data engineering and scientists? Well, it's an interesting question around skill sets. I think when you, again, look at a machine learning, if you take a program level view, right, your data, the feature engineering, the cleansing, the preparation that goes into it is about 80% of your overall ML program. Modeling itself is a very, very small portion relative to the data engineering work that has to be done. Typically, it's not the same skill set that's doing the underlying feature engineering, data cleansing, data preparation, but they're working in concert with that data scientist who is doing the modeling to, again, interpret what does this correlation analysis mean? right? What does the distribution of our data mean? And how do we address some of these underlying 
data engineering needs in the context of what our model is trying to predict or provide insight into against what we're seeing again as our in our data analysis exercises right the relationship of the data within itself yeah and the way i'm seeing this play out is you you know if you put a data engineer and a data scientist in a room and they start talking about a particular business use case the engineer can provide the aspects of data management whether it's the uh, you know the the etls and elts that they need to build to go get the data to a point and then the metadata driven framework which then explains what data are you trying to use what is the definition of the data you're trying to use on the other hand, the scientists can actually explain the algorithms they're, they're using and why they're using a specific type. And more importantly, these inherent data biases that you talked about, um, you know, which, which can be avoided um, from day one by not making data up to your use case, by just giving the data to an algorithm and see how it pans out, right? So they, th that's the way I'm seeing these two kind of working with each other um, you know, in the world. Do you, do you agree with that? Does that make sense? Yep. Yes, it does. Awesome. So we talked about the skill set. Now let's go to the very, very important question. Ethics. Responsible AI, ethical AI, some of the words that, that comes to my mind when we talk about that, right? What is your point of view and, and what's your advice to our listeners here? I mean, how, how can, with AI growing so fast, how can you still make sure that the, the models you're building, the, the, the conversational bots that you're trying to build, the digital and the data technologies, how can they still be ethical? I mean, I think, again, it always has to be looked at in the context of the, the use case we're deploying, right? So creating a conversational application that's going to you know, help someone find something more simply on a site or make a payment more quickly has a very different ethical implication than let's say a clinical decisioning app that's going to, you know, let's say perform a cancer screening or uh, transplant readiness, very different ethical implications, right? Of those two things, any model, any AI algorithm cannot be thought of as set it and forget it the output always has to be looked at critically and looking for those implicit and explicit biases that may exist within your data. For example, I think this is a, a fairly widely known example, but um, a, you know, an algorithm was trained to identify executives, right? Based on past experience and the algorithm almost always in the end, selected white male resumes. Because that's what history would tell you is the profile of an executive, right? And so looking at, you know, it takes the human lens to look at that output to say, yes, this is, this is an accurate model, right? This is what history would accurately say is a profile of an executive, but I can apply my human logic my human decisioning process and say that this is not maybe an ethically appropriate model. And you start to then look at how do you, you know, do you use the model in that scenario? Or do you intentionally oversample 
resumes of non-white male executives. And there, there are some decisions I think that are made along the way, but it's really, I think about, again, applying human strengths, right? Empathy, logic, um, you know, an ability to look at these problems more subjectively and find the right mix of your machine learning program and your human decision-making process. Mm, you know what? This reminds me of a, a chatbot that Microsoft built in <laughs> 2015, 2016. Yes. I think it's called Tay or something like that. And and uh, Taylor Swift sued Microsoft for that because it was creating an inherent racist comment in Twitter. Um, and basically the racist comment was very similar to the example you gave. And it, I mean, it didn't do anything on purpose. It was just trained to do a certain way, trained to look at a certain data set. And the, the data itself fed that kind of bias. But, um, you know, the algorithm didn't do anything wrong, you know, unless there's a human in the middle that's trying to train the algorithm. But evil stuff. <laughs> yes. And that's why, again, it's a great... That's a great example of why do I choose supervised learning over unsupervised learning? You have much less control, right, over your black box, and it will learn through experience with an unsupervised model. So I think there's been some pretty important lessons learned. Again, going back to that value hype, which path do I start to head down conversation? Right, right. No, absolutely. That's a that's a great uh, advice. So. One question, which which I'm seeing a lot of these software vendors playing in the data and analytics space, continuously adding AI capabilities. Um, you know, Microsoft within its whole SaaS services that it offers adds AI. Informatica offered a lot of AI. IBM, not just its Watson services, but even the non-Watson products are adding AI into their software itself. Does that... Um, I mean, what do you think of that? Why are all the software vendors adding AI as a part of their platform itself? Well, I think there's two reasons, right? One, one is always the, again, the heart, the hype and the marketing driven element. Your product is inherently more exciting if it's AI or ML enabled, right? And we have moved into a space where that becomes a basic expectation, right? It becomes just a basic expectation of software products and platforms today that they have AI ML. So you have to have it to meet that basic expectation or your product is not even thought of as valuable. Um, I think the other element that we are talking a lot about with clients these days, it's, it's really the newest version of a build by decision, right? Every platform is gonna have AI ML in it. And therefore, you are starting to decide, do I use an embedded AI ML approach in which I leverage the existing algorithms and models in this platform? Or do I actually have a need to customize, extend, or create an insight that's not already there, right, with this, these pre-trained models and this embedded AI? So it's kind of the newest flavor of a build-by decision that's always existed in technology. And we typically just encourage you to look at what am I trying to accomplish? And if a pre-trained model can get me, let's say, 80% of the way there, so the AI that comes with my digital marketing platform or the AI that comes with my CRM platform, if I get 80% of the way there, 
is that good enough? Or do I need to be able to tune and train for that other 20% or it's not valuable at all? And some of those decisions I think have to be made when you're looking at that build by embedded versus platform AI decision very early on typically in the process. Yeah, and I would say another thing to add to that, um, in addition to the marketing, the expectation is this concept of intelligent automation, right? So essentially the AI components of the software platforms gives you that intelligent automation capability. Take for example, AI in master data management essentially means the AI can predict your hierarchies and segmentation that you talked about. In fact, even the data quality issues. And AI in engineering essentially builds you your data pipeline and then an AI in analytics can actually predict out of the box in some cases what, the, the, you know, based on the data you feed, are you trying to look into this? Have you looked into this, right? These kind of uh, insights that you as a human being haven't thought about, but the software is offering you these. They're not necessarily automating it at that point, at least giving you an opportunity to think about those things. So uh, have you heard a lot about intelligent automation? Um, we, we certainly have, right? I think there's a lot of different flavors of, of what you can consider intelligent automation. You know, I think um, we've been working on this space with our digital process automation team for a few years. I think Gartner is now calling this uh, hyper hyper automation. Hyper automation, um, yes. Right. So there's a lot of different terms, you know, in the context of what that means. Um, you know, intelligent automation, whether it's automating a business process end to end whether it's automating a pipeline, automating testing, th there is a broad spectrum of application for that term. And it is certainly uh, an explosive topic at the moment. Fantastic. Well, so I, I think, you know, we can talk about AI for hours and hours and still not cover all the topics, but I want to be sensitive of your time and availability. So a couple of questions before we um, wrap up. Can you give me a maybe you know two to three examples of the AI components you've built, your team has built, um, that sticks your mind. I mean, you guys are doing a lot of cool stuff, but give us two to three examples that really sticks to you and says, wow, we did this. Sure, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try and think of a couple things across the broad industry and use case base, right? So we've, we've done some work Conversational commerce, I think, is an explosive topic as well. And we have done a lot of work recently around you know, a guided buying process. We're doing some really cool work with an automotive manufacturer to really simplify the online buying process. And as a consumer, when I come to your site, I might just say, I want to connect my iPhone to my car and I want lane keeping assistance and I need seven seats. What do you have for me? In a traditional site, you know, I'm going to go try and find the right class of vehicle. I'm going to probably have to go do a comparison, look at a matrix, and try to decipher OEM specific terminology, right? So we're doing um, phase two, actually, of a guided car buying experience, where we're creating an AI concierge to help consumers through that decisioning process in an everyday language way, the same way they would have if they walked into a physical dealer. And looking at building that capability out, you know, we not only deployed it on a web experience, but also created an Alexa skill 
for that, right? So we were able to expose that same intelligence, that same capability across multiple channels. I think there's going to be many more use cases like that to come. Again, as conversational commerce becomes more of our day-to-day -day and messaging is becoming, again, more of the way that our that people inherently communicate with each other. Is that only available when I go buy a Lamborghini or is that available when I can buy a Toyota Corolla too? <laughs> more, more to come on you know, the specifics of that particular um, implementation, but the concept applies to all, right? We've done that with retailers who are selling clothing products, right? It can be applied to a wide variety of spaces. It can also be applied in the context of shopping for a health plan. That's another application we're seeing of this same type of experience, right? It's a confusing space with a lot of very specific terminology. How can we help guide people through that process in a more everyday, intuitive way? So conversational commerce, guided shopping, whatever you want to call it, this notion of creating a human to human, you know, in a sense, interface to a complex topic area, um, I think is one of the really interesting things we're doing. Um, we've also done, again, in the space of intelligent automation, we've helped to automate uh, a lending process beginning to end. So rather than, you know, upwards of 20 human touches on a single loan, you know, it's now about one. And instead of taking 36 hours, it now takes minutes, right, to go through an entire lending cycle. So lots of applications of this technology, huge diverse application, really looking again at where there are overly complex or, um, you know, a lot of human touches to help move information through a process or a life cycle, um, you know, is also a very interesting application. Amazing. So you talked about the conversational commerce and the intelligent automation. Uh, do you think that these capabilities are going to be more affordable? I mean, five years ago, this was very expensive to build, right? H have you seen more affordability, like only large organizations can tap into it, or even the small to mid-sized companies can go build these capabilities? Oh, we certainly have, right? And that, that comes with, again, the, the broader adoption of cloud-based technologies, where it's all a consumption-based model, and your spend on the technology is directly related to the consumption of the service itself. So we're no longer talking about you know, eight-figure investments in this space. And typically, again, I've mentioned business value and ROI many times, critically important. We're often seeing ROI in as little as three months, right? Where you've recovered the entire cost of your investment and your ongoing platform costs widely varies based on use case, of course, but can be as little as a couple hundred dollars a month. And this becomes a competitive advantage in the post-COVID transformation, absolutely. right? Absolutely. This becomes almost like a must. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right, fantastic. Well, what advice would you like to give our listeners who are either starting this journey? I mean, I wouldn't say starting because it's it's a pretty mature technology at this point, but at least, you know, the, the COVID has driven digital transformation. It's accelerated it very fast. So what would you, uh, what advice would you give our listeners who wants to accelerate their journey into the space of AI? The, the single most important thing I think anyone can do, and this is, of course, in my role as strategist as well, but the single most important thing anyone can do is understand where you're going with the technology and outline a strategy to get there. It can be very high level, 
but try to understand beyond just the single use case that you're trying to drive today. What am I trying to do with this technology? What is the transformational vision and outcome that I might realize with AI ML? And think through that big picture because you will build your small building blocks and your models and your data pipelines differently with that big picture in mind. And you'll create an ability to scale rather than starting over every time you have a new use case and a new application. So identify your strategy, know where you're headed, and create tactical execution points along the way to realize that big vision. Amazing advice. Understand and articulate your journey, identify and build your strategy, and then build tactical steps to achieve that strategy. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm personally looking forward for the world of AI where humans and AI work together. Uh, more importantly, I'm super excited about this thing called artificial general intelligence, you know, the Terminator type. <laughs> yes. And, uh, sometimes in my lifetime, I, I hope it happens. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Arvind. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com. Or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.